This message by Jeff Perswell titled, The Leaders of Worship, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the third general session at our Worship God 2009 conference. Jeff is the dean of the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College and serves as a pastor at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're looking at that in a few minutes. Um, I'm, I'm sure Bob has emphasized this probably over and over, but let me just say on, on behalf of Sovereign Grace and Covenant Life Church, who's hosting, I'm duly employed, so I can sort of speak on behalf of both. Uh, we're so grateful that you're here. It is such a privilege to host this conference, and it's a particular privilege to, to speak at this conference because you're speaking to people who are just... You just love to worship. You, you're, you're just rowdy um, in, the, in the good sense of the word. And so it's such a privilege to be able to speak to you. Um, I'm sure you've already been encouraged and equipped. Uh, actually, a friend of mine affectionately refers to Dr. Piper as the pipe bomb. <laughs> and I have not been able to... Um, attend so far, but as I've heard, he's already gone off twice. And um, so as I follow him, my goal is mainly just not to choke on the smoke um, that's up here. It's when I agreed to to speak, uh, Bob didn't inform me, he failed to disclose the order of the speakers and um, that I would be going after Dr. Piper. It's, I mean, speaking to musicians, it's, what if your garage band had to play after you 2 um, Hopefully there will be no cans thrown, um, people not filing out. Um, I see Donald Whitney down here. It's so good to have you, Don. To use a sports illustration, it's kind of like, a, you know, in a basketball game at March Madness at the end of the game, they put in all the freshmen when the game's basically over. That's sort of what I feel like. Um, <laughs> just kind of run out and guard people. And, and uh, either I couldn't figure is either that or I'm sort of like the halftime marching band between, <laughs> between Dr. Piper and Thabiti. Or, or maybe the flag corps or something. I, I don't know. If you're in the marching band in high school, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to grasp for some analogy to relate how I'm feeling. Actually, it's a distinct honor. It's always an honor to share God's Word at any time. Um, But as I was contemplating this, it occurred to me, maybe you know how I feel. I mean, maybe you are here, you have arrived from your home church, and you come from a small church, average church, and then you, you find yourself in the midst of a crowd of 1,600, as I said, rowdy worshipers. Um, I mean, you've been led in worship by Bob Coughlin. I mean, you know, one of the greatest worship leaders on the planet. Um, special music? Sure, we got special music. How about Keith and Chris and Getty? All right. Um, why not? Uh, Backup singer, sure. Let's throw, let's throw the Bairds at them, Ryan and Megan Baird. And those are the backup singers. And you notice how tight the bands are, and not just one band, but like all of the bands, this battle of the bands up front. And then, oh yeah, 130 voice choir. Um, 130, that's all. Um, and then the kids. See those kids? Did you see the one in the orange shirt on the front row with the curly brown hair? Where did they get that guy? (laughs) Beautiful kid. Just beautiful. (laughs) I don't know if we have a picture of him, but, um, you know, that's my son. Um, what are my two sons? Well, you, you've experienced this now for a couple of days, and 
And you realize that in a couple of days, you're going to be returning home. And maybe you've already begun to be distracted by this. Maybe if, if it's a sine curve, you, you've, you've started up the sine curve on, when did it start? When, uh, yeah, last night, you know, you're excited, you're driving up, you're, and then you're at the top of the sine curve when maybe Piper's preaching, and then you start going down the y-axis because you got to go home pretty soon and to your church and to your worship team. All three of them. Um, <laughs> relatives. And, uh, with a, a budding guitarist. Emphasis on budding. No drums, but the, you can get the pastor's son to play the djembe sometime. Um, very... Very sincere singers. Godly people. Godly people. Sound system. Unfailing feedback. And, and you leave this auditorium and you go back to a rented elementary school with miniature chairs that never seem to fit. And, and, and you try. I mean, man, you, you try. But it just doesn't seem like worship God 09. Uh, your corporate gathering on Sunday morning bears little resemblance to what you experience here. Um, let me first say this. Thank you for loving the Savior. Thank you enough. Thank you for loving the Savior enough to be here, to be equipped, and not only loving to worship the Savior, but uh, for many, if not most of you, using your gifts to lead others as they worship the Savior. Um, thank you for the difference you make Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. As I thought about how I might best serve you, I was. The topic I'm addressing is the leaders of worship. Uh, one can be tempted to immediately think practicals, practical recommendations. Now, there's a legitimate place for practicals. There's, you've had a, I mean, Bob, I don't know, this is like no other conference, truckload of seminars uh, giving you practical recommendations on every matter of Musical worship and every instrument and I don't know hi hat seminars or what I just I don't, I don't just unbelievable what Bob pulls off here but I don't think that's the best way I can serve you here's what I have discovered as a pastor uh, we can have an insatiable appetite for practicals uh, we can give primary place in our in our thinking and in our practice to methodology to practical matters. Now, biblically, that's getting things the wrong way around. Theology precedes methodology from a biblical standpoint. Doctrine precedes practice. Doctrine informs practice. The methodology can have some effect. Methodology is helpful, but theology will have an enduring effect. It's no different with those called to preach. I, one, of the, one of the things I, I teach is preaching. Um, no comments. Um, those who can do, those who can't preach. Um, but s- skills are important with preaching. There, there is a craft involved, but skills aren't sufficient. And if... A pastor does not have convictions about preaching. If, if he does not know the origin of preaching, if he does not know the, the nature of preaching, if he does not know wherein the power of preaching lies, 
well, he is, he is going to be, he, he's going to be underserved. He, he must have convictions about preaching. He must be informed about preaching or his practice of preaching will drift. His, his faith for preaching will diminish. He will be tempted to use substitutes to preaching in order to build his church. Which is why when I teach on preaching, I spend hours Hours building a theology of preaching before we even talk about practicals. Now, I want to do a similar thing tonight. Um, and I want to in, seek to inform our, our practice with doctrine. I want to think together tonight with you about our corporate gatherings, about our worship gatherings, that we might function more faithfully in those gatherings. It's not enough to have practical instruction as a worship leader or a musician or a singer. And from here on out, when I use the term worship leader, I'm using it inclusively. I'm talking about worship leaders and musicians and singers and songwriters, anyone who serves in mixing the sound, anyone who serves in any way related to that. We must have convictions. And, and the, the wonderful thing is when we have those convictions, you know what happens? Faith comes. Even if the band is not as tight as you would like, even if mistakes are made, even if the responsiveness of the congregation seemed tepid last Sunday, if you have convictions about what we're doing, faith will come. So, so maybe you're here and you are a discouraged worship leader, weary in the task. Maybe you're here as a professional worship leader, and you find yourself frequently impatient with others. Maybe you're you're here as a zealous worship leader, but when you're in a gathering like this, you're all too aware that you are untrained or that you are not theologically informed. Regardless of where you find yourself tonight, God's Word has substantive it has illuminating, it has faith, what I believe will be faith-building counsel for each and every one of us. And so tonight I want to draw our attention to what I trust will be a, a worship-transforming passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me there. I will begin reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in this familiar passage, there we see a priority placed, the priority that Scripture places on the corporate gathering. You see it in verse 26, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Scripture commands us to gather as a body. Scripture assumes that we will gather as a body. And as worship leaders, that's the, the primary context in which we serve. That's, that's why this conference exists. But it's far too easy to assume this command. It's far too easy to go about fulfilling this command without grasping the reason for the command, without grasping the nature of the command and, and the blessing that God desires to impart through the command. 
We, we won't know how to participate, much less lead, in our corporate gatherings of worship unless we understand the nature of corporate worship, unless we understand the answer to the question, why do we gather? God has created the local church. He has called us to gather. He has defined for us the purpose of gathering. And so it's critical, especially as worship leaders, that we understand it. And so tonight, that's what I want to do. I want to explore what is behind this command to gather so that we might more faithfully serve God and serve his people when we gather. So would you pray with me? And ask that God would help us tonight. Gracious Father. Lord, we have gathered. And we have... We have... Marveled and and celebrated. Your great love for us. And Lord, now we we gather around your word and I pray that you would speak. That you would speak to us through your word. I pray you would align our minds and our hearts with your word. So that we and our worship might be transformed by your word. Through the Spirit's work. And for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to inform our leading of worship, I want to consider three reasons for this command in Scripture. Three reasons why we gather. So we're going to proceed quite simply tonight. Reason number one, we gather to encounter God. We gather to encounter God. The text that we read exhorts us in verse 22 to draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Now, this part of the text is not explicitly for the corporate gathering, although it is completely applicable to the corporate gathering. This is a privilege drawing near to God that all believers have individually. It is, it is really the essence of being a, a Christian. We draw near to God through Christ. It's a definition of being a Christian. And, and it's a present tense verb. Let us continue to draw near to God. Let us continually draw near to God. And so we draw near to God in prayer. We draw near to God in His Word. But this privilege is especially true of the corporate gathering of God's people. Your local church this coming Sunday, this privilege is especially true of you. In fact, Encountering God in this way is not set forth here as a goal that we strive for. It is the very nature of the church. To to be the church is, by definition, to gather in God's presence. To worship God together. Now look over with me two chapters. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 18, here the writer is is entering, engaging in a contrast. He is contrasting the experience of the people of God in the Old Covenant with that of the New Covenant people of God. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
So the writer is recounting the gathering at Mount Sinai recorded in Scripture in Exodus chapter 19. After their deliverance from Egypt, God gathered his people. He made a covenant with them. He constituted them as a nation. He constituted them as his very own people. Now, that's what's being described in the first verses. Look now in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you see the contrast that, that he's drawing. It, it is staggering. At, at Mount Sinai, all that happened served to emphasize and highlight the chasm between God and these people. At, at Mount Zion, everything encourages us to come boldly into God's presence. There... At Mount Zion, the, the scene itself is frightening. There's fire and darkness and gloom. Here, in Mount Zion, there's a gleaming city. The new Jerusalem. The true, God's true dwelling place where He dwells with His covenant people. There, at Mount Sinai, the, the sounds are frightening. Look at it. Whirlwind, trumpet blast, unutterable words. Here, Mount Zion, the sound of exuberant praise, celebratory praise. The word speaks of celebrations as such might occur at the Olympic Games. There at Mount Sinai was a gathering, all right, but it was a solemn gathering. Filled with fear. Here at Mount Sinai, there's, there's a joyful assembly of those whose names are forever written in the Lamb's book of life. There at Mount Sinai was a picture of the unapproachability of God's holy presence. But here is a picture of full access into the presence of God. Through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So you see the contrast. Now, think about your church. Think about your people you serve with, you live with. You see where it fits. Have you fully grasped just what your local church is and what it engages in on a Sunday morning? Here's what it is. It is one authentic, visible, one authentic, visible manifestation of the entire people of God for all time. It is a part of the heavenly throng that even now is worshiping before the throne of God. You're part of that. P.T. Forsyth, the theologian, spoke of the church as an outcropping. It's, you, know what, you know what an outcropping is on a mountain? It's, it's a mountain covered with, with trees, but throughout, maybe on top there are rocks, and, and there's little outcroppings where you, where you see stone. Well, But it's all the people of God. Well, your church is, is one of those outcroppings. You, your church is one authentic manifestation of the entire people of God. Which right now, is worshiping before the throne of God. That, that is the reality of new covenant worship. That's the reality. It is worship in God's presence. And, and when you start getting your arms around that, they're... they're, they're there's spring to mind a thousand reasons to rejoice and to praise and to sing and, and, and a thousand reasons to repent and to renounce flippancy 
and to renounce self-display and to renounce selfishness and to renounce superficiality and to renounce sloppiness and to renounce thoughtfulness. I mean, think about it. We're worshiping with angels. We're worshiping with creatures who, if you saw them, If you saw them, you'd be tempt, you'd fall down in terror and you'd be tempted to worship them. We're worshiping with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This would include, by the way, the, the heroes from the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, we're, we're, we're worshiping with these these men, mighty men of God, mighty prophets who who so trusted God, some of whom were so endued with power that they stopped lion's mouths and they put foreign armies to flight. We're we're worshiping with them. You don't want to you don't, you don't just strut into that worship service. And, and we're worshiping with some who faithful saints who endured torture and uh, refused refused deliverance if it meant compromise and instead would choose a stoning pit or a chopping block before they denied And if they survived, they willingly, joyfully embraced poverty and deprivation and persecution. They feared God and they feared sin more than they feared man. All so that they might receive something better. And, and when, we, when we worship, we join their ranks. And, and then with them, oh, we come before the throne of God. Who, as verse 29 says, is still a consuming fire. Before, before the God who is a consuming fire, we don't elbow our way to the front of the line. We don't demand our artistic preferences. And we come to Jesus. He's there. Our mediator whose who sprinkled blood cleanses us from sin, who, who, whose blood, as the writer says, speaks a better word than Abel's. Why? Because Abel's blood, it, it cried out for judgment. But Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. So back to your home church, back to next Sunday. Uh, when you enter and the music begins, what are you more aware of? Is it the song set? Or the musicians? Or the mix? Or do you perceive something beyond? We don't just hold meetings. We don't just sing. We come as the people of God, into the very presence of God. And when we do start to sing, we are entering into a glorious worship that right now is taking place unceasingly before the throne of God. This, this is a reality regardless of how you feel, regardless of who led worship, regardless of what songs we sang, regardless of how you thought worship went. There's something incredible going down on a Sunday morning. That's why we don't wander the lobby. You don't want to miss it. I'm not taking a week off to relax. I don't want to miss what's going on in there. Something of eternal consequence is occurring. 
I don't want to miss that. That's your church. That's next Sunday. And if you aren't informed by Scripture, you will be unaware. Now, yes, you can draw near alone. You can draw near in your room with your guitar. God is always present at all times, at all places, with, with all of His being. But He is, he is especially present with His people. He is always present everywhere to sustain and uphold. I mean, Jesus is right now upholding, Hebrews says earlier, upholding all things by the word of his power. And if for one moment he withdrew that, I don't know, I'm not a physicist, but I think it's something like disintegration. But he is, oh, he's present with his people. Not just to sustain, not just to uphold, but to bless. To do them good all the days of their lives. To, to reveal Himself. And to bring us joy by doing so. As I bet Dr. Piper said. And I wish I could have heard it. And to glorify Himself. And this isn't only when we had kicking worship, you know, when it was happening, when everyone was firing. No, uh, it's, it's not just when, during the singing, God's presence almost it, it, it just palpable. That happens. That's to be cherished. That's to be hungered for. But it, it's more fundamental than, than that. It is, quite simply, a consequence of who we are as God's people. It's by definition. The church, God's people under the new covenant, worshiping a risen Savior, celebrating an accomplished redemption, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we enjoy privileges unparalleled in salvation history. Oh my goodness. Now a conference like this is a gift from God to remind us of topics like this. A conference like this is a gift to allow us to explore such things. But here's my concern for you. What about six weeks from tonight? How real will this seem in two months? So let me just ask you, what, what can I do, what can you do to revisit this reality, to, to meditate upon this reality to, to, so that your worship is informed by this reality? If you don't, let me tell you, and I experienced it as I was studying to preach, if you don't, you will become gradually, maybe, but increasingly, you will become unaware of this reality. And you will become, at the same time, more and more unaware of this reality and gradually but increasingly aware of other things of secondary importance. Things of secondary importance, maybe things of no importance, will start to capture your attention. And your heart, let me tell you, you're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. Your heart will grow weary in well-doing. So let me encourage you. Revisit this scene. Faith and joy are to be derived from this scene. You know what? That is the very reason the author of Hebrews wrote this. That's the very reason he paints this picture. He's, he's writing to a church that is discouraged. They are tempted to turn away from their faith in light of the costs. They're tempted to opt for a safer religion. They've seen Peter and Paul lose their lives. That's no easy thing to swallow. Peter and Paul? 
They've, they've suffered. You read it in the book. They, they've suffered economic deprivation. Many have had property confiscated. Some of their leaders perhaps martyred. So they're discouraged. They're tempted. They're wavering. And so the author pens this book filled with exhortations and encouragements and warnings designed to brace them in their faith and to renew their resolve. And all of these exhortations come to a climax in this text. Chapter 13 is going to be a, uh, uh, just a series and closing of, of, ra- of somewhat random exhortations. The book's argument comes to a climax here. Because it's not just a saint. It defines their identity. And you know what? It is as real as God himself. It's as real as it gets. So the first reason we gather is to encounter God. It's the very essence of what it means to be the church. It, it's what occurs whenever we gather, regardless of size, regardless of skill of worship team. So, let us be perceptive. Let us be attentive. Let us be amazed. Second reason we gather. We gather first to encounter God. Secondly, we gather to, to respond to God. We gather to respond to God. Look at how, back in chapter 10, our verses unfold. Back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We must be very clear at this point. We don't simply, on our own, at our leisure, by our skill, Draw near to God. The author gives two bases upon which we do so. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's, that's the heavenly sanctuary. That's where Christ intercedes for us before God. Oh, my goodness. By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way. A way which is new a new in this period of salvation history, new in a way it had never been before, and living, it, it leads to life. By a new and living way, through the curtain. Now, there's temple language. The curtain that hangs before the Holy of Holies, cordoning off the presence of God, rendering Him inaccessible to sinners. Oh, it's through, right through that curtain. That is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Pay careful attention of the basis for which we enter. Our act of drawing near is preceded by something. It is preceded by Christ's act of redemption. Our engagement with God is only possible because God has acted first. Now that is what is at the very core of worship. Get this straight. We must get this straight. We must remind ourselves, all true worship is a response to God. All true worship is a response to what God has revealed about Himself. There is no worship apart from God revealing Himself. Don't forget, there there is this chasm between God and, and humans. It's a great chasm. It's, first of all, ontological, has, having to do with our being, our, our essence, because God is creator and we are creatures. That's, that's a pretty good thing to keep in mind at all times. 
He's creator, we're creature. For us to know him, he must reveal himself to cross that ontological gap. But that gap is also moral because he is holy and we are sinners. And so we can only approach this God through his gracious act of redemption. So true worship then is only possible when God has taken the initiative to reveal and to redeem. Without that, no worship. Without that, any presumed worship, any ostensible worship is idolatry. So, let's, let's be crystal clear on this. When we are singing, we are not bringing our original, self-generated, creative offerings to God, somehow impressing Him, somehow inspiring Him, somehow contributing to Him, somehow adding something to Him oh, that, that, that He longed for and that He was missing and without which He was incomplete. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. But it's so easy, isn't it? it, it it's so easy it, it, in the name of I don't know, creativity or artistic integrity or uh, excellence. There's a word to be careful with. In the name of excellence, to begin to think of our worship offerings as having some sort of significance independent of God. This in and of itself is good. It's self-generated. I'm contributing something. Your song. Oh, it's subtle, isn't it? Your song. Your, I don't know, Mark, I'll choke you. Your, your trademark riffs. Your, your solo performance. I, when we worship, we're simply responding in adoration for who this great and glorious God has revealed himself to be. We're, we're responding in praise and thanksgiving for what this gracious God has done to create and to redeem and to remove the curse from us and to bind us to himself and to take responsibility for us in covenant and to make us his children and to promise one day to bring us to himself in fullness. That is why <clears throat> this whole idea, that this is why preaching is so important it's such an important aspect of corporate worship. Now, notice I did not say preaching is a great and necessary follow-up to corporate worship or preaching is an optional extra in corporate worship. It, beware those attitudes. Oh, why did we have to stop singing? Let's just call off the preaching. We're just going to we're going to sing the whole time and boy Beware that attitude. There, there is nothing more central to Christian worship than the preaching of God's Word. Think about, oh my, I'm tempted to go many places here. Think about, though, um, in the first instance, the, some great worship services in your Bibles. Think of Mount Sinai where, where God rescues and gathers his people specifically, by the way, Exodus seven sixteen to worship. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So in that gathering to worship, what's the climax? It's the giving of the law, isn't it? And then a few chapters Later, a few books later in Deuteronomy, when the people are gathered beside the Jordan, finally, finally they made it. They're on the, they're on the cusp of the promised land. And, and Moses renews the covenant with the next generation. What's at the heart, what's the substance of this gathering? It's the reiteration of the law. And Moses, page after page after page, preaching, explanation. Application. Exposition. Turn over. <laughs> when Joshua brings the people finally into the land. Now they're in the land and he gathers the people in Joshua chapter 8. What was the climax of that gathering? Was it the singing? No. 
He read the law to the assembly. The, that word in the original, that's, the, that's where we, it's translated in the Greek. It's kahal in Hebrew. It's translated in the Greek, the church. The church is, is the assembly. It's the gathering of the people of God. It says he read it in the assembly, and the, and the authors is specific to say men, women, children, every, everybody. Every word Moses commanded. Let's not miss a thing. Let's not miss a word. Let's not miss a stroke. After the exile, Nehemiah gathers the people. He assembles the people. What do they do? Ezra reads the law and then explains it, exposes it to give the sense of it. Oh, we could go through your Bible. Throughout salvation history, God's word is at the center of worship all the way into the new covenant where the early church devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and every church was nourished on God's word all the way down to the last chapter of the last book that Paul wrote where he tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season. Don't stop. Now, why? Why so much preaching? I mean, let's, let's get it on. Why all the talking? It's, it's this. Relates to our first point. The primary way we encounter God in worship is through the preaching of the Word of God. Um, think about it this way. Normally, what, what we call worship, our singing... In that portion of our meetings, we spend significant time, the whole time perhaps, addressing God, singing to Him, praising Him, extolling Him, praying to Him. Wonderful, wonderful. In preaching, we're no longer addressing God. He is addressing us. What's more important? That's why that's why the most important worship leader in your church is your pastor. Are there any senior pastors here or pastors who primarily bring the word of God on a Sunday? Thank you. Thank you. Worship leaders. You there's no more significant there's no more significant way your church could be served there's no more significant way your church could be led in worship than what you do thank you for your faithful labor thank you for your prayers thank you for your preaching if you're a worship leader in the broader sense of the word you do this thank your pastor for being the main worship leader if you're here with him thank him here if he's not here thank him when you get home It'll mean a lot to him. See, that's, that's the nature of preaching. This, this is not a book that we talk about. When God's word is faithfully preached, God is addressing us. God is speaking. We hear not a man's voice. We hear the voice of God. You should, when someone is preaching, when they're preaching faithfully, and I pray I am, uh, you, you ought to just picture a giant finger coming over their head. Just a giant divine finger poking you in the chest. I'm talking to you. <laughs> I'm addressing you. This has to do with you. But it's a loving finger. And it's a faithful finger. That's what's happening in the preaching moment. God is addressing us. And, and as He does, then what do we do? We respond. That's the rhythm of worship. God addresses us with a saving word. We respond to Him with faith and praise. That's the rhythm of worship. That's the essence of worship. Now, if we, if we recognize this, uh, we will be protected from a number of errors. And I will cover these quickly. A number of errors in our worship gathering. We will be protected first from formalism. We will escape the scathing rebuke Jesus gave the, the, the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah's words. You, you know the verse, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far, far from me. Lip worship, superficial 
It's singing because everyone else is singing. It's, it's singing because that's what we do in this part of the meeting. Man, I, I grew up doing this. And worship leading can, can cultivate that. You know, we, our, our exhortations become, we, you know, we, we feel our jaw getting stiff. Come on, sing. Sing like you really mean it. Or, come on, get up. You can do it. Really. You, you, you're creating formalism. You might be creating people who will receive this rebuke. Man, don't do it. It protects us from emotionalism. For those on the more passionate side, you might sing at times because you love the experience. You love the exhilaration. And worship, singing can be exhilarating. There's nothing wrong with that. But but if it gets to the point where if you don't feel the rush, if you don't feel the high, then you think, well, we really didn't worship. Or worship was no good. Oh man, you are in dangerous territory. You know what you're doing? You know what you're close to doing? You're close to worshiping worship. Rather than worshiping. God. That's dangerous. If we're aware that worship is fundamentally response to God, we'll be protected from legalism. Another fatal posture. Seeking to earn one's favor before God. Few things are more insidious and we gotta, we got to be careful with this because now worship is just a thing, right? It's a big thing. The magazines and websites and conferences and, um, and worship leader, professional worship leaders. And, um, but it's deceptive. It, it's this idea that worship is an act of gaining favor from God. That in worship we are working our way into the presence of God, into His Felt presence into his blessing. That, that we, we can begin to think that God's presence is something we can attain through our actions. Now you're, you're also in dangerous territory there. When we think that, that worship takes us into God's presence. That, that if we sing loud enough and close our eyes tight enough, then surely God will be pleased and will meet me. You're not worshiping worship. You you have made worship a substitute for the gospel. Worship does not take us into God's presence. Worship does not take us into God's presence. The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross takes us into God's presence. That's precisely what our text insists upon. We draw near by a new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain that is through the flesh. The Hebrews 4, which this text is actually recapitulating, come near, draw near with boldness to the most holy place. The last place in the world we ought to be bold is in the most holy place. Apart. On the cross. That, that's why it's so important, this, this whole idea of worship as a response. That's why it's so important. That's why we, we are passionate about biblically rich content in our songs. Our, our goal as leaders, and I know, I'm sure you know this, but our, our goal as leaders is, is not to use music to arouse emotions. We're not about creating atmosphere. God forbid that we manipulate people's emotions by sentiment or spectacle, by, by visuals or, or by volume. Our goal is the display of God through revealed truth. That's our goal. That, that we might rightly perceive His excellencies. That we might 
marvel at his character. That we would, through the eyes of faith, behold our our Savior and and just capture a glimpse of of of, of his effulgent, his radiant glory, and 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 have a breath taken away by that, and then in response to that encounter with truth, to have deep and substantive affections, and and to be to be humbled, to be humbled for his greatness, and 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 to be satisfied though and rest in his all sufficiency to to trust profoundly in his his rock solid faithfulness and and to joyfully proclaim oh yes his his excellencies so worship leaders musicians singers songwriters pray pray write sing speak Play. Do it all for for one massive display of the glory of God. Set for, make it a goal. Set forth for your people through song, through words on paper. Set forth His excellencies. Set forth for your people God's mighty works, supreme of which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Expand. You you want to create worship. Expand their perception of God. Deepen their knowledge of God so that they might delight in God. So that when people come to your Sunday gatherings discouraged or or tempted or weary, so they, they might have the horizon of their souls just captivated by this God before whose presence these angels that could kill you, they hide their eyes. Before whose Whose power, you know, a nuclear explosion, man, it's like bubble wrap. <laughs> Whose purposes rule history and empires and nations. Isaiah says the, the nations, they're like, they're the dust on a scale. You can't even see. It's just like, whew, it's gone. It, it didn't even register on the scale. Any power. Any oppression, it's just nothing. And, and his, his attentive care, this powerful great God, his attentive care extends to monitoring your hair count. Every hair. The ones that went down the drain this morning. More for me than for many of you probably. You know this God, don't you? Tell them. About tell me about him. I mean, we go, you go on, right? A, a God whose, whose knowledge dwarfs the accumulated knowledge and wisdom, pseudo wisdom of human history. Who, whose love, oh my, his love is poured out on declared enemies. Whose whose faithfulness guarantees. That not a second, not a nanosecond of your suffering is wasted. Not a nanosecond. Everything you do out of love for Him and obedience for Him, it's not forgotten. Remember that cup of water? Everything you do, you go home and think, oh, this is this. This is this worship team, it's a joke. It's not a joke. All of that is being woven together. And when Jesus comes back and brings the kingdom, it will be part of His restoration of all things. He's not forgetting the thing you do. Because He's motivating those things you do. He's empowering those things you do. That is your job. Set forth those things. And you know what will happen when you do? Worship. <laughs> Worship. God besotted, spirit empowered faith and praise and joy and faith and consecration and godliness and obedience and mission. It'll flow. Here's a third point, and I'll just mention it. We gather to encounter God. We gather to respond to that encounter. And we gather finally to strengthen each other for 
the glory of God. And that's the end of our text. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see the, you see the divine logic there. Note the connection between 24 and 25. Stir up, not neglecting to meet. Not neglecting to meet, encouraging. It, it's an either or, isn't it? We either meet, and as a consequence, we encourage and stir up, or we don't. What I want to say about this is, is, is just one thing. When we are leading worship, we're not simply... You, when, when you are standing before people and ser- seeking to serve, you're, you're, you, yes, you're, you're, you're preoccupied with God in His assessment, in His Word, but yet you're, you're not having a private moment with Jesus up here on the stage. You're representing the people of God before God. And so in your worship and in your playing and in your singing... You know, you don't just go over and just kind of dance in the corner. No. You're wanting to serve. So you have a role in this building up. 1 Corinthians 14. There's the, in the context of gathered assembly, there's one requirement for the gathered assembly, Paul says. The one criterion, edification. Does it edify? All the parts of worship do. The Word of God, the Lord's Supper, our singing, they all edify. Our goal is to seek to ensure that everything we do does edify. And so, this then becomes a goal as you plan your worship services, as well as a criterion when you evaluate those services. Did it edify? Did it edify biblically? Defined edification. So, Sunday is coming. What are you going to be aware of when it arrives? I pray that as leaders, you, myself, we will be alert. We will be discerning many things we must attend to important things, but many things we must attend to are of secondary importance. Uh, They can become a distraction from what is primary. And it's those things that demand our greatest attention. Thank you for serving God's people. Thank you for loving to seeing God's excellencies and for using your gifts to serve as people. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, it is... It is a privilege beyond words that you would invite us into your presence. It is a blessing beyond comprehension that while we were sinners dead set on our own glory, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, it comforts us that you have set your affection upon us and bound us to yourself and taken responsibility for our lives. That's a comfort, Lord. Lord, I pray that as a result of how your spirit 
would illuminate your word to us as a result of the messages and the teaching and the fellowship and the conversations and the seminars of this conference, Lord. I, I pray, I ask what I believe is your will that to a person the attendees of this conference would leave more aware of the God they worship than their participation in corporate worship. More more in love with this God to whom they sing. More convinced of His love as displayed in the cross. More filled with faith to proclaim your excellencies that you might be pleased and honored and glorified. In Jesus' precious name, whose blood makes it all possible. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Perswell which was given at our Worship God 2009 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.